she, I think it would be probably better to wait after I'm talking to be giving me such a great applause. But thank you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we get introduced as being from Washington, but uh, with everything being shut down, we don't even have our licenses changed over. We still have Nebraska licenses. And, uh, and um, as we were coming back, we have to go through Washington, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming. And as we cross over from Wyoming to Nebraska, this is, this is another home. I've, I've grown up in Colorado, and that feels like home as well, but you definitely leave a, I left a part of me in this state. I, as soon as I crossed over, I spent a lot of time in this state traveling around. It's very familiar to me. I know a lot of these towns, and, and it was nice to be home. One of the things I was looking forward to in Washington is I really like rain. It's, it's just my thing. I swear I've seen more rain here in Nebraska than I have the entire time in Washington. Washington's been a gigantic disappointment. All these sunny days and cloudless skies, my goodness. But today, I want to talk about our mission and mainly what motivates our mission. Uh, Jesus gave us a, the mission statement for the church. We're supposed to go out. We're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to baptize. We're supposed to teach people about Jesus, and then we're supposed to show them how to continue to live their lives doing it. The church I'm attending right now in Washington simplifies that, say, just saying, helping people find and follow Jesus. A nice, a nice simple, sweet uh, motto. But that can all change when we, when we observe what is the motivation behind that statement. What if it's wealth? Okay. We're supposed to go out and make Christians to build the wealth of the church. We know from the Bible, from Proverbs, that following God's ways naturally makes a person wealthy. There's just wisdom in that. But if that's our main motivation, we're going to be chasing after those that are wealthy. And if we see somebody that we don't figure can add value to the church, we're just going to step right over them and keep on walking because we're looking at somebody else. What if it's comfort? Because we know that when you follow God, God blesses your life, that God protects you. And, and another, another key root in Proverbs is if you follow God, there's natural consequences that give you a prosperous life. So maybe we should, we should tell others about that so that they will be comfortable. But then we have to start picking and choosing parts of Scripture where we see that God promises us that if you follow him, your life will not be comfortable. It's really important that we figure out what our eyes are on. That was a big lesson my dad was teaching me when I was first learning to ride a bike. He says, look at where you want to be. He says, if you're going to be in a turn and you're looking out the ground, you're going to end up on the ground. So I, I, he took me on my first uh, bike ride that I was on a full-size motorcycle, a uh, Honda Shadow. So I, I have it in my head, but... but Head knowledge isn't necessarily the same thing as instinct. And we get out on the highway, and man, that's fun. You know, you're in a straight line, you're going fast. It, it's a blast. We get into town, and he's wanting to turn around, and he turns down a street. And I take the turn, and I'm like, I've got this. I've got this pretty good. And then the turn turns a little wider, and I'm like, well, this is not going quite the way I want, but I think I'll make it. And then I see there's an SUV parked right over here. I'm like, I'm going to hit it. I'm going to hit it. I'm looking right at that SUV. I'm going to be right there. And I just remembered, it's like instinct. I need to look where I need to be. And I look where I wanted to be in, and I turned it. I didn't know I could turn that sharp, but I did, and I made it. But the, I think that's important. We need to know where our eyes are. 
I'm going to talk about one of my favorite people in the Bible. And it seems like my favorite people are in the, in the Bible that their mistakes are well documented. Why? Because I know I make a lot of mistakes. And I can relate to those people. Enoch, you know, this guy that was so good that God took him from the earth before his time, I can't necessarily relate to that. I wish I was that good, but I'm not. But today we're going to talk about Peter. And we're going to go to uh, Matthew, Matthew 16, and we're going to start in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that, that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Man, it's really easy to say, what do other people say? Because it's not your opinion. This is what they're all saying. Then Jesus goes deeper. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, if you read the Gospels, he seems to be a guy that likes to jump ahead of everybody else. And sometimes it works out for him. Sometimes it doesn't. This is one of those times he speaks up. Simon Peter answered saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a big statement. It is. And Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's powerful stuff. Can you imagine the Son of God telling you that? Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Revelation. Simon Peter says, you are the Son of God. And God reaches out to him, and, he, and he, he places his great calling on his life. And I think we all kind of know what that feels like. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there was a time where, where a mere mortal said, God, I need you. I need you. And the creator of the universe reaches down in love, and he forgives you of your sins. And that's great. It's a revelation. But we have to be careful with what that revelation does. This is just verse 21. We, I stopped reading 20. This is right after that. From that time, Jesus began to show up to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. So Peter knows this is the Son of God. He already kind of, he, he placed a calling on his life, told him what the future was going to look like for Peter. Peter likes that revelation. What I will bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What I'll loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm the rock that the church will be built on. So Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is a rough truth. Because the thing about revelation, we can have revelation one time, 
But that can't be the last time we have a revelation. If we focus on that first revelation, it does not keep us in tune with God's plan. I think when Peter said that you are the son of God, you are the Messiah, I think he had a lot of preconceived notions about that. Living in Israel, I'm sure he, he loved his country. This was the land that God gave us. God gave us, and my forefathers bled for this land. We fought for this land, and the creator of the universe, God in heaven, said this is our promised land. And you would look around him, and you would see Romans, foreigners, occupying this land. So when he says the Messiah is here, he interprets it through his mind. There's going to be a war. We're going to take back this land. It's going to be like when David was king. Nobody could stand against him. And I believe that's how he began to, he took that one revelation and he began to run with it. And put his own vision in there. We're going to move a few more chapters to Matthew 26. And Jesus is telling them, guys, it's coming to a close. 26, verse 31. This is right after the Last Supper. They're getting ready for for really Jesus' death. And it says he's been teaching him about this for a while. But then Jesus said to him, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. There's hope in that message. God says it's going to get bad. Jesus says it's going to get bad, but there's hope at the end of it. Peter doesn't hear it. He's too busy fixated on his own revelation. This is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to win us back the promised land. And Peter answered to him and said, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. When all the swords are drawn, I'll be standing next to you, Jesus. I'm going to fight by you to the end. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not to die, uh, deny you. And so said all the disciples. Jesus prays in the garden. And he asks his disciples to stay up with him and pray with him. He knew there was a spiritual battle going on. But the disciples fell asleep. You might, you, it might be said they, they were thinking that maybe they needed to get their rest. Something was going to go down, and they wanted to be physically ready, but they neje- neglected the spiritual aspect of it. They weren't listening to Jesus. And then when the time came in, in verse 47, oh, I will, and while he was still speaking, he was chastising the disciples for falling asleep. Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came to the chief of priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign. Whoever I I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. This is so weird because this whole time, even during the Last Supper, Jesus knew what Judas was doing. This is a scummy guy. But Jesus... He doesn't respond in anger. He says, but Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly 
one of those who were with Jesus, we learn from the other Gospels, it's Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. If you remember earlier in the Gospels, Jesus instructed his disciples to buy a sword. And I believe that's what Peter thought the tool of spreading the new kingdom was going to be. And he saw this as, it's go time. This is what I've been waiting for. I told Jesus when they would come for him, I would stand next to him. And he draws his sword and he lops off this servant's ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not, th not think that I can now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? We know from the scripture that when an angel shows up, and he means business, civilizations crumble. And God can summon 12 legions? He doesn't need Peter. They could wipe the slate clean. Easy, easy. He doesn't need Peter to fight his wars for him. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Peter got caught up in his own vision, in his own revelation. You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And with this sword, Jesus, with my sword, we will win back the promised land. It's dangerous when our motivation is fueled by our own revelation. In my own life, it was when I got the call to ministry, it was an amazing thing. I've seen my dad have, have big ideas, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And he's, he's talking to this other pastor, and he's spinning a, a grand idea. It's gigantic. I'm skeptical. I'm like, man, if, it'll work if God's in this, but if he's not, you're in, you're in for a lot of disappointment. You're crazy. I just felt God kind of grab me and said, not only am I in this, but you are too. That was the first time I've ever experienced anything like that. To felt God just reach out and touch me. It was, it was humbling and it was exciting and it was awesome. It was awesome to hear from God so clearly. And I came away excited that I, I could hear God so clearly. And I started to take, take little things and I would think that they were God speaking to me. And then guess what? Sometimes they'd happen and sometimes they wouldn't. And it would surprise me. I was like, I thought I had a dream and this dream meant this and this was to come to pass. Why didn't it? When we, when we separate the revelation from the one that gives it, we can find ourselves in a world of pain. We can take what is the sword of the spirit, which is, which is a weapon that, that can change the world. When we turn it in the sword from the spirit, when we disconnect it from its source, when we use the word of God to, to further our own motivations, it starts to lose its real power. In the church, we, we have the, it's dangerous because not all of our revelations are the same. And pretty soon we'll be arguing over whose revelation we are to follow because we all hear from God. And God talks to us all differently. And we interpret it differently. And if we think that it's our war, it's that our war is to defend that revelation, the church will cannibalize itself. The the church I grew up with in Pueblo, Colorado, I got I've got two family members on the founding board's plaque. So 
our family has a long history in that church, and kind of a, a funny story is they were kind of, I think it was the color of the carpets, but it was an aesthetic choice, and it was getting heated. It was getting rough. And this guy, we had been sitting in the back kind of dozing off. He was kind of getting sick of it. And he stands up and he begins to give a prophecy. He says, and I have seen the hand of God write Michelob over the door of the church. Michelob? He meant to say Ichabod. You know, God has departed, but Michelob over the church. That could mean two things. He believed he was receiving a revelation that was wrong, and he made a mistake. We have to realize that we are fallible. God's not fallible. God's word is not fallible. Our interpretation of his word is. So that means either he was focused on his motivation or he was willing to push his revelation. He was willing to really blaspheme, to say God has said this to lie about it, to push his own agenda. And it's so easy for us to turn from the motivation of revelation to the motivation of self-preservation. Man, the reason the carpets need to be this color is because we need people to come into this church. It needs to be acceptable to them. So I know what's right. If I just lie this one time, will it really be that bad if it saves the church? Self-preservation is a dangerous thing. When we submit ourselves to self-preservations, we start to make decisions that compromises our relevancy to the needs of our culture. We know what happens next. Jesus already spoiled the story. Peter cut the, uh, the, the ear off of the uh, servant, and now he's following behind. And for this one, we're going to go to Luke's account. This is Luke 22, verse 54. And having arrested him, they're talking about Jesus. Luke's talking about Jesus. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. I'm sure there's still a little part of him that, that wants to prove that Jesus was wrong. Everybody else is running away, but I'm going to follow you at a distance. I'm going to be by your side at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat at the by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him. He denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little uh, while later, another one saw him and said, You are also one of them. I believe in John it says this guy is the cousin of the, of the servant that got his ear cut off. He's like, I know you. You cut off cousin Judah's ear. I, I know you. I saw you. And Peter says, man, I am not. Then about, after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this fellow was also with him for he's a Galilean. Listen to how he's talking. You can tell. This is one of the disciples. But Peter said to him, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned to Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. I think when we look to our own revelation, it's exciting and it puffs us up. 
But then as we walk with Christ, it can be easy to look around at the world. And when we, when we look to our own, when our own interpretation of Revelation, when we cut ourselves off from the source, we start relying on our own strength. And then we look at the world around us and we see that the problem is bigger than us. That if we play by God's rules, I can't do God's will, so I'm going to have to do it my way. And my way is sinful. My way is fleshly. Peter might have been able to, to make the argument, I'll come back from this. I need to stay alive tonight and lead the rebellion later. Jesus might be dead, but I'll keep his work on myself. But I need to stay alive tonight. I remember after that calling, I mean, it was great. I loved it. I had a purpose on my life. But then reality sinks in. And I look at myself, I'm like, man, I'm not sure I'm cut out for this biker ministry thing. I'd grown up in it, sure, but I had my doubts. One of the things that really freaked me out, when I was a young man, I was on Run for the Wall. It's something that this church does very regularly. It's a great ministry. But it starts in Los Angeles and it goes to Washington, D.C., and it was the longest ride I had ever been on, and it was great. It was just me and Dad on an 883 Sportster, and we, we went all across the whole country. It was a great time with Dad. We make it to D.C., and, you know, I'm just this small-town guy, and I'm impressed by all the big buildings. I remember we're parked by a stoplight. I'm just looking at this thing. It's, it's bigger than I thought buildings can be, and it's glass all the way up. looks like this giant mirror. And then I see this car just come running at us in the reflection. I'm like, wow, that looks bad. And it was. It hit us. Bam! We were stopped at a stoplight. That car thought we were running the stoplight. So it sped up and just plowed right into us. I went on run for the wall the next year because I knew it wasn't Dad's fault. Dad's a great rider. But motorcycles are dangerous. Maybe I don't want to learn how to ride. Maybe I'll trust it while, while it's in Dad's hands, but maybe, maybe it's not for me. Scared to death of it. In fact, in fact when I'm talking about that, that story of learning to turn, I was shaken. I was shaken. I did not want to do it. My dad's like, today, let's get on the bike. Let's, let's see. I passed all the tests for my learner's permit and all that, but I didn't want to do it. He was making me do it. God, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Another thing that freaked me out is I'd see my dad struggle with this. He'd come up with a great idea, and he'd run at it full force, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't, but it didn't matter. It seems like he was always in touch with God. He always had the next step. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'll be the one to give up. I don't, I don't have that vision. I don't have it, God. And as I grew older, there was that, there was that doubt. And I began to wonder, maybe God will release me from this. And I began to pray, God, I ain't cut out for this. I think I'm much better over here. I think you can use me better over here. I think, I know me, God. And I think I'd be much better not doing this. And it came to a point where I felt there was a real fork in the road. I remember I was, I was walking back and forth. My, my wife, we had just been newly married and we had one car, and I worked at a McDonald's on this side of town, and she worked at a Taco Bell over here, so 
she would get the car and I would have a like a five mile walk and, and I would really gave me a chance to pray. And I just remember God really cementing in my mind. It, it, it's, it actually, he brought a story from way back when. It was, it was this pastor in a church talking about how they had opened this sanctuary and it had been all this work and God had helped them through. And they were, they were praying and dedicating it to God's work. And here's this guy in the back row. They don't know who it is. And so they go to, go to greet him and say, hey, how are you doing? Who, you know, who are you? you know, can we get you involved in the church? The guy's weeping. He's crying. He said, God told me to do this years ago, and I told him no. I told him no. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us for anything. What he offers us is an opportunity, and that he has handcrafted us for a purpose. And when we tell God no, when we say we aren't going to do it your way, we're hurting ourselves. We never get to see what we were made for. When we make self-preservation our motivation, it can ruin things. It ruins God's plan. We see that in history. If you look at the church, I believe the church started out great. But I, I want to tell you something. I'm, I'm glad I don't go by the, by the title priest. I mean, there's a lot of controversy from that. And I believe it can be led. You look at choices in the church's past that they would try to preserve the church and it would hurt their clergy. I guess kind of what I'm referring to is God says in the Bible, it's a gift to be celibate. You know, God gives you the gift to not be married, to not have a family. But the church imposed that on all their priests. Why? They were worried about squabbles with church property. This is going to tear us apart, guys. So why don't we take what Jesus said in here and we'll, we'll just put it to the side. We'll do our own vision for preserving the church because that'll help us out. No, I don't believe it did. I believe it hurt them greatly. But when we submit ourselves to self-preservation, it compromises our relevancy to the needs of our culture, not the wants, but the needs. So I'm telling you today, the culture wants us to give up. They want us to become just like them because it, it makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable. I've had friends that were, were homosexuals, okay? And there was always that tension because I was nice to them. I loved them. I knew they were, they were creations of God. But there was that border because they didn't want to give up their lifestyle and, and I can't give up mine. The church would, or The world would love it if the church would just... Give in to that compromise because then we can all be friends, right? And it's going to hurt the mission. If we try to stay relevant with our culture and do it our way, we're going to lose how God can really use us in this world today. So when we look to ourselves, to our own revelation, we, we, we can cannibalize the mission. We'll, we'll end up fighting over it. When we look to the world and we focus on self-preservation, It'll make us impotent. But when we look to Christ, when we focus on Christ, we, we dedicate our lives in fealty to him, that's when he can really do something. Luckily, that's not the end of Peter's story. It goes on. 
And I'm going to go to John 21. I know I'm jumping around, but that's the thing about the Gospels. It's so great that four authors wrote about different perspectives, and you can really get to see different sides of the story. This is the third time Jesus appears to the disciples. And they had had a, they had had a night of unsuccessful fishing. It was pretty rough. And then Jesus tells them to, to go try again. And they find that they get a ton of fish. And man, Peter latches onto that immediately. He knows who this guy is. He doesn't wait to the, for the ship to get back to shore. He jumps in and he swims. He's still Peter. He loves Jesus. He really does. But he's made a few mistakes. And they bring the ship to shore. Peter's still... He's so excited to see his Lord. He doesn't ask for help. He grabs that net of fish and he starts hauling it up himself. He's so excited. I get to eat breakfast with Jesus. And when they're eating, this is 21 verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Good. It's done. You know I love you, Jesus. But then he says to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter says to him, yes, Lord. You know I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? It hurt. It hurt him. Because I bet it reminded him of the third time he denied Jesus. I bet it reminded him that he hadn't been a perfect disciple. That what he had said he would do, he did not. He had trusted in the wrong things. And he had failed. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you that when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will gird you and carry you to where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by the death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. I believe Peter's vision was, was to have another kingdom of God be on earth, to have an earthly kingdom of God, to have a, a fellowship with, with brothers that also loved God. It was, it's a good vision. It was too small for God. It was too little. He gave him that initial revelation, but when we come up with our own ideas, it ain't big enough for God. By the death it, and this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. This Roman Empire that I believe Peter wanted to overthrow. As soon as the good news would get out that God sent his son to die on the cross. That we don't need a priest to intercede for us. That the purple curtain is torn and God is now among his people. The way the Roman Empire responded, kill him. Kill him. That message is dangerous. We're going to stomp this out. We can't have this in our empire. And Peter would, it's church tradition that Peter dies a martyr's death. Still, still being Peter. Saying, 
I'm not worthy to die like Jesus. He was sentenced to crucifixion, saying, I'm not worthy to die like, or not worthy to die like my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. The Romans killed him. And it might seem like his mission failed. I want you to know, though, the Roman Empire fell. It fell hard. In fact, I believe the only reason that they have as much influence now is because of the church. The Roman Empire built roads and, and all this stuff, but they would be forgotten if not what God was able to do with their infrastructure. God had a plan for the Roman Empire. And man, when they pushed hard to kill the Christians, it was the blood of the martyrs that fueled the flames that would topple the Roman Empire, topple the paganism in the Roman Empire. Peter didn't, I don't, he didn't get to see it, but his, I believe that what they wanted came to pass. They didn't know North America existed. They, they couldn't have. But now we're talking about Peter's witness miles and miles, an ocean away. He had a, he had a way further reach than he could have even ever imagined. And why is that? Because he made his purpose God's vision. And when we do that, when we keep going to God for what is, what is true, God, what do I need to hear from you? God can do way more than we could ever do it by ourselves. Going to my less impressive, back to my less impressive story. I knew that I didn't want to live my life being that man weeping in the back row. I didn't want to be that guy that when God told me, do this, I said, nah, God, I got a better idea. And then lived the rest of my life wondering, what if I had said yes? What if I had said yes and went? I give God my concerns. I go, God, I'm telling you my weaknesses. You already know them, but do what you may. I was a young man. Yeah, I had had a little a drop on a motorcycle, but all I needed was practice. That's all that, that went away so quick. Riding the motorcycle, you get, you get comfortable on it. It's just needed practice. It was overthinking things. And in fact, it's actually one of my favorite things to do because when I first started riding, I got in the habit of always praying, God, I'm going to die on this. I need you to help me out. I need you to be here right now. Now when I ride that motorcycle, it's special between me and God. We're all alone and we can talk. And I remember it was actually riding home from Sturgis one year. Sturgis, it, it went pretty well and we were all done. And, but I'm praying to God, I'm like, God, if dad dies, I don't know what direction this is going to go. I need you to give me a vision. I need to hear it from you. And he did. But here's the thing. I need to keep coming back to him. I want, you know, if I'm completely honest, Nebraska was a giant disappointment to me. Because when I moved here, I thought I was going to die here. I thought I was going to die in the Converse's Lake, or I was going to be buried out there. I wanted them to send me out in a little canoe, shooting a flame and arrow, and that's where I'd be buried. I thought that was the end of my story. I was going to work here for the rest of my life. That was my plan. Then it come to pass. And when my plans wouldn't come to pass, I would have to come back to God saying, what's next? I didn't know I would be moving to Washington. And in fact, I was kind of disappointed when, when, when we were talking about it. There was a little bit of me like, I just got comfortable. I don't want to move to Washington. But I'll go. 
Because I know if I say no, I'm, I, I'll always wonder. I can't. I can't say no. And I'm in Washington right now. And I wish I could tell you guys everything's peachy. Man, I've got this plan, which I've got a plan. But man, things are moving along just exactly how I'd want it. No. I'm constantly wondering, did I make a mistake here? God, is this what you're wanting me to do? I'm trying to plot out every little thing. But I know, as long as God's helping me, it'll work out. And here's the thing, that when, our perp- when, we, when we are motivated by, uh, by Christ, by our fealty to him, by obedience to him, even when it seems like we lose, we really win. I would consider Nebraska a loss for me. I'm gone. I'm gone. But I believe God has something better for me. And you know what? We go to Washington. There's no honor-bound guys. We're there to build it up. Even if nothing comes from it but just me being obedient, that's a victory. See, even when they kill us, even when they killed Peter, he won. He won. The game's rigged when you play with God. You can't lose. You can't lose. You're going to win. I'm going to end my message, but I want to challenge you. If you're living by a single revelation, if you haven't been in touch with God, and you're running on the fumes of an anointing, so to speak, I want to challenge you. Get back in touch with God. You'll find that the world looks a lot better. There's a lot more hope. You'll find that you can stand your brother and sister that you've been wanting to punch in the face for the past few years. <laughs> I want to challenge you if you're looking at the world and going, man, it's scary out there. It's scary out there. It's hard to be a Christian. It is. Again, I challenge you, go back to God. If you're afraid, you're, you're saying, God, I just don't have the courage to stand up in today's world. Yes, God, for that courage, he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you, and he'll walk with you. If you've made mistakes, if you've made mistakes, come back to God. He'll help you. There might have been missed opportunities. You might have screwed things up real bad, but it's never too late. God can always do something with somebody who has a willing heart. It's much better following God. It's much better being in tune with him. And I believe, uh, we look around at us, and we, and we I, I don't think, I think on either side of the aisle, if you ask them, what do you think about our country? Everybody, I believe everybody right now says, we're in trouble. We've got problems. And, we, and I see so often that we think the answer is this logical argument that the other side will somehow see our perspective. And the way that we logically argue is by shouting as loud as we can. That'll do absolutely nothing. I'm going to tell you what's going to bring real change. is a church that's dedicated to Christ. We're salt and light. The only hope for America is that if we stay in tune with God's will, with God's will, that's the only way things are going to get better. The absolute only way. I challenge us as a church. Man, we've been in quarantine. This has been the perfect time to get in touch with God. There's a lot of things that, that I felt challenged with because I was sitting at home alone watching a sermon on the computer. And I had extra time. I wasn't going out to eat afterwards. I had some extra time to pray. 
get in touch with God. I, I believe God is placed on many people during this time of everything being closed. I bet he's placed a new mission on your hearts. And as things start to open up, let's go in that mission. Let's not forget about when God touched us, about when God talked to us. Let's continue on in that mission. Father God, I thank you for this church, Father. Man, I remember when I first showed up and I had a ponytail. And man, I didn't know how they were going to take me. God, they opened their arms in love to me. God, I thank you for Lexington First Assembly of God. Lord, I thank you for motorcycle ministry, God. It's a great thing that you have raised people up that care about those that maybe society don't think are worth uh, going after, Father. But you say that we're worth it. I thank you for that. God, I pray that you take each and every one of us. And, and if we, if me, if Josh Hubble is struggling with his own vision, if we are struggling with our own vision, God, break that down. Get through to us, Father God. Let us know that we need to get back to you. And if we are, we are being motivated by self-preservation, if we see the way the culture is going and we feel that we should be influenced by that, Father God, wake us up. Shake us up. Even if it's painful, God, wake us up. Even if when we look at you, God, if we see you again, we end up weeping bitterly like Peter did when he realized he messed up. God, we know there's hope on the other side. Wake us up. Father God, and I, I pray that as we offer our efforts, as we offer our prayers, as we offer our actions, God, I pray that you would take them and do way more than we could ever. God, I pray for a change in this country. I pray that we would look back to you, Father God, and use your church to do that change. In your name we pray, amen.